back to the Better Your Best podcast. I'm your host, Michael Davis, founder of Kindling. Find us at shopkindling.ca or Kindling Media on social. I'm joined by Joel Sherlock, a serial entrepreneur with some serious cannabis industry credentials. Joel founded Daventi Capital, which is a cool name, the cannabis industry's first private equity firm, following that up with Vitalis Extraction Technologies, which Joel grew to the largest manufacturer of cannabis extraction equipment globally and third fastest growing company in Canada at the time. Not to mention he's a Harvard grad who actively invests through his family office, NIM or NIMB Capital, and gives it all back through his founder pledge. Welcome, Joel. How are you? Hey, fantastic. Thank you for having me. Great. Great to have you. So 16 startups I see here. So uh, what time do you wake up? <laughs> Glutton for punishment. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, that I guess that varies on what time zone I'm in. Right. Right on. And you're in Nevada right now? You've got a house down there, you said? In, in Nevada right now, yeah. So, uh, you know, not, not crazy early this morning, but uh, all is good. Right on. Um, so in my uh, research, I uh, came across your Instagram page. And now I've had some uh, tangles uh, with uh, wine in, in my past, but uh, I don't think it's ever spoken to me, literally. Um, can you speak to this uh, profile of you, picture of you uh, listening to your wine? Do you can you oh get, my clean some from that or? You know what? So it, it it started with a good friend of mine, Jesse Harden from Mount Boucherie Winery in Kelowna, and uh, they have a restaurant there called Modest Butcher. Um, he's he's quite a character, and uh, there was a wine photo shoot going on, I think, for some magazine that he was being featured in. And we were joking around maybe after some wine about, you know, he had this huge wine glass and then he, we were, somehow it came up that you need to hear the wine. You really got to listen to it. And now <laughs> it's become, it's become a running joke. But uh, yeah, so in a food company that we're invested in, that's like my profile picture because I, I just, uh, I found it amusing. <laughs> nice. Speaking uh, to that, you said you're, you're invested in that uh, food company. So with the amount of startups yeah. that you're uh, you're involved with, and uh, obviously, like the you know, you have to move through them fairly rapidly. What drives that for you personally? Is it a uh, sort of opportunity? You see an opportunity, you, you can't you know miss out on it, or is it sort of like you're scratching a personal itch as you uh, as you see this? You know what I I I think probably um, opportunity has certainly been been a big part of it. Um, you know, when we started Daventi, which was one of the first private equity funds in, in the cannabis space, but, you know, again, we had a very unique angle to it, right? We were very operationally focused. We were looking at a lot of picks and shovels in the beginning. My partner on that was was really strong on the cultivation and, and production side. Um, and, you know, I sort of stumbled into it. So, you know, I was a real estate guy for the longest time. And, and you know, we, we had somebody come up to us on a warehouse we owned and said, $10 a square foot, I'll give you 12. And I thought that's terrible negotiating. Why? Um, you know, and they, and they told me then that they had a license from the government to grow cannabis. And I laughed and, and ushered them out of my office. Uh-huh. You know, we're talking like 2014, right? So right in the early days of, you know, the MMAR uh, way, way, way back when. So, you know, I talked to the mayor, talked to the chief of police afterwards because they had letters and I thought they were Photoshop uh, and they were real. And that was sort of my first experience to it. And then met some guys who had a fertilizer business and that was kind of more, they needed some help. We thought we could help. The business numbers were strong and, and that was really our first equity investment there. 
Awesome. And you, so, uh, oops, sorry, go ahead. You know what? I mean, it, it, it's always been kind of a multitude of things. I mean, you know, the starting of Vitalis was, was more out of frustration um, when, when we were looking to standardize to one piece of equipment and, and the current manufacturers told, told me to, you know, where, where to go and how to get there. And I, I didn't really like that. So we started building our own machines and then it became uh, the, the, the great company that it is. So you mentioned uh, that uh, these guys came into your office with a cannabis license. So is that so you that was the first time that you came across cannabis in terms of like a, a business venture? Did you have any cannabis connections growing up at all? Other than well, the regular um, use? I mean, you know, grow, growing up in Kelowna, I think um, the opportunity of a cannabis business uh, was was kind of all around you. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't something I knew lots of people who were in that market. But it wasn't something that I had ever looked at. I mean, as a real estate guy, you know, if your home was turned into a grow up, that was, uh, you know, the kiss of death. So it was certainly not something um, that, that really was in my portfolio at the time. Right. So uh, Deventi Capital, um, did that form around that one interaction you had with someone looking for space to grow? Um, and then you just sort of strategized around that? Um, one interaction whereby you're sort of providing yeah. the picks and shovels, as you say. So the the interesting part is, you know, Deventi was a was the two GPs there were myself and, and Norton Singhaven. So Norton is the CEO of Avant Brands right now, um, and and Norton I met in the real estate world, really really s- smart guy, and had had made some investments on uh, in the cannabis world, and so really it was through some conversations with Norton. And, and really, he was my in-house expert. I mean, I'm a ideas, structure, scale entrepreneur more so than I am a cannabis entrepreneur. So Norton understood the cannabis business very, very well. And, you know, he was a, a phenomenal diligence machine in the early days because people had wild numbers and, and you know, like everybody would brag about their yields or how much they were getting or potencies or, or different things. And to me, that was all a language I didn't speak. So, um, you know, Norton was my go-to and, and then that sort of formed the early days of Deventi. Gotcha. As a uh, investor and a serial entrepreneur, you've had some exposure to a lot of industries. Is there anything that you found sort of endemic to the cannabis industry that is uh, unique to it? Without question, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it, the the interesting, I guess, maybe not unique to it because it was unique to me when coming into the cannabis industry. But now I've seen it repeated a number of times. Right in the early days of a market where everyone is sort of figuring it out together, there is a lot of hype a lot of over-promising and, and, you know, ultimately, you know, I'm going to build a $100 million greenhouse and we'll pay it off in three crops, right? I mean, you know, th- that's always the one that, that sort of reigns true. I won't throw anyone under the bus, but many people said those kind of numbers. But really, when you put it through a business lens, if, if you're in commercial agriculture and the margins are that good, everyone's going to get into it. Supply, demand, margin comes down. You know, I mean, it's it's it, it's... It's not unique, uh, you know, and I used to say this quite a bit when we were investing a lot, it was, you know, is the quicker people can figure out that they're in commercial agriculture, commercial manufacturing, right, right. and consumer packaged goods, the better. 
right? If there are high margins, take them. But to count on high margins in your business model forever is, is foolish. So like you, your approach would be to take out the actual product, you know, properties or whatever, like forget that it's cannabis and operate as, as you would with uh, widget XYZ kind of thing, or you don't think that's possible? Uh, you know, I mean, it's got some very interesting, unique properties for sure. It's right. not, you know, just because you could grow tomatoes. Um, and, you know, we, we had a bad experience with this one, a, a large tomato grower getting into the, the cannabis world. And, and certainly that investment uh, didn't go as we had all planned. So just because you know ag doesn't mean that you're going to be successful over here. However, if you understand how to run a greenhouse and run an ag operation and track the dollars and understand your costs, those are fundamental to the success of a cannabis business, I feel. Got yeah. And as a, uh, with, how'd you get the name, by the way, Daventi? It's cool. Yeah, so it's, an, it, I mean, it went where we originally came up with it, it's an Italian term for to grow. And then uh, we, we made Very some nice. unique changes to it just for domain and, and branding gotcha. reasons. What's but that's background? really where it came from. Nice. Is your, are you My Italian? Oh, yeah, are you Italian? That, dad's an Aussie. Um, mom, mom was born in Canada, but, uh, you know, there's some Italian in there, hence these, these great eyebrows that I have. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but no, dad's Australian, Canadian. Uh, you know, there's some Italian in there, European. So just nice, a little nice. bit of everything. Speaking of which, I kind of I'm, I'm going to bring it back here so we can get some uh, structure. We're going to start from the beginning here with you. Um, so you said you're a Winnipeg boy, uh, moved out to Kelowna, um, and is that like so with your uh, sort of career, your glittering career? Was there any entrepreneurial um, clues um, in your childhood at all when you you know as you were growing up? I- you know Did you have I a lemonade stand? Is what I'm asking. Like everyone else. That, oh, like stores. paper root lemonade. Yeah, that stand. one. Tell me the hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, to be honest, I, it was um, a family friend of ours had like sure had a paper root, you know those kind of things, right? But I grew up with uh, you know phenomenal parents, and and you know I was probably the um, not the easiest child to raise. <laughs> You know, my older brother didn't lay many uh, frameworks for me. You know, I, I was the, he was like curfew. He was already home and I was like curfew. I don't know what that is. Right. Um, but really the first job, you know, my parents were very, I had everything I needed and not everything I wanted. You know, you want a car, go out and get a job. You know, you want those shoes, get a job. You have shoes, right? Um and so at the time, I, I was definitely driven to go in and get things and paper route to, uh, you know, Don, oh gosh, I can't remember his name now, family friend of ours who owned a strawberry like patch and a bunch of land and different things. But the first job I ever had where my income was tied to my production was actually picking strawberries. And I was like, this is great. I got paid in cash every day. And the harder I worked, you know, if I worked twice as hard, I would make twice as much. And I just, you know, I never really looked back into commission sales from there. And, you know, it's starting a couple businesses uh, after that. So, And is that how you viewed uh, a career in general where, you know, it's a means to an end? You wanted the money, you wanted the things. So you kind of, you know, pick more strawberries, so to speak. Or, um, you know, is there another drive to you? You know what, I, I would say, no, it, you know, like I, I definitely had a 
time in my life where it was it was material heavy and you know fast cars have always been a thing in my life but you know certainly don't have a, a garage like I used to you know I, I now look at assets depreciating and appreciating in a very very different way than than when I was at that age um, but I guess you know my my career I guess started a lot of these businesses when I look back at it you know like my very first business was an e-commerce company I was running a board shop at big one yeah, okay. yeah, very. What what year was that? Sorry to interrupt you. What year? No, uh, I mean, I was 17 when we started planning that and kind of probably 18, 19 when we executed on it. And it was very accidental, I guess. My brother was, you know, and still is a, a brilliant uh, computer scientist. And so we built um, like an e-commerce engine and I was going to go and build my own store, you know, like kind of accessories, board shop kind of concept. Um, and then, you know, the guy who was going to back the real estate side of that ended up um, getting a divorce and then called me one day and said, hey, you know, I'm out. I don't have, you know, I'm not putting the money up for it. So, again, you don't go forward with the lease. You're not building anything out when you're that age with no cash. But we had relationships with some brands and most of them when I said no store, but I still want to sell online told me no. And so the first business was a company called Luxus Accessories way, way, way back. But we sold uh, bags, belts, you know, the OGO bags was a really, really big one for us. We got uh, working with them when, when you so know, you were quite reselling uh, products you weren't uh, manufacturing. It was a, a retail sort of retailing gotcha. drop ship retail. And, you know, before oh. that was really all the rage. Um, must, you must have been 10 years previous to the drop shipping yeah 2017 2018 2019 rage for sure huge yeah yeah maybe even more than that you know i'd have to yeah check my linkedin and that i'd have the dates if it goes back that far (laughs) that's funny so you mentioned uh your brother's a uh, software engineer which uh, obviously helps and uh, when we were talking over the weekend about how you built this uh, manufacturing business, um, I guess it kind of there's a thread there, right? Like you're you've got the idea, you've got the approach, and you've got a an engineer in the wings uh, in the form of your brother when you're growing up, and then uh, obviously building teams around that uh, those concepts as you developed it. Yeah, like you know, so so my partner Nim Capital um, is Pete Patterson, and and Pete's very famous for saying, you know, Joel's Joel's always got a guy. Right. And, and like, I, I do really value in the, the power of relationships and, and kind of, you know, I'm always interested in hearing new ideas and, and exploring, you know, kind of crazy ideas. Um, we end up tabling or not moving forward with a ton of them, but some of them, you know, and then be it driven by opportunity or frustration or, you know, some hybrid of both, um, you know, is, is, has worked well thus far. Nice. And um, so you went to, I'm just trying to, you know, chronologically move through these without jumping all over the place. So you're, uh, you went to UBC for finance. Um, were you a natural numbers kind of nerd or? No. 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 I mean, I was a terrible, I mean, not to drop that cliche, but I, I was a terrible student and, and I wouldn't, you know, I, it's just, I don't learn the way traditional schools teach and is, is what I've, what I've learned. Right. So, I was a very poor student in, you know, and much to my mother's chagrin, who was who was a teacher for her whole career and and quite involved in in that uh, in that world. 
But I just, you know, when, when you're sitting in a class and somebody sits you down and gives you a piece of theory and says, you know, read this, learn it, memorize it, you know, that kind of stuff, it just, it doesn't capture my attention. So I was very lucky early in my life to meet a couple of instrumental mentors and, and I learned a lot from them. Uh, you know, one in particular gentleman by the name of Peter Thomas um, really got me involved in conversations. And, and you know, we, I just learned so much from Peter and, and still a dear friend to this day. Um, I really like, I like to dive into it and figure it out, right? It, if it's real world and there's stakes, you know, I'm, I'm paying attention. I assimilate information that way. So, you know, my, my education later in life, I, I totally understand that Ivy League, uh, you know, uh, Socratic method of teaching, if you will, right? Case studies about real world business opportunities, deals that went down, how they went well, how they went poorly. You know, I love that. That I learned, you know, an exceptional amount with. It kind of speaks to having, you know, over 16 startups wherein, you know, you're approaching a new problem and you're, you're sort of ingesting it and taking it on and, and creating a strategy around that. And then, you know, employing the engineers as we see, um, to sort of execute it, which has been a pattern. Um, so after UBC, you end up, uh, did you take a break in between UBC and Harvard or, uh, did you go straight in? Oh, huge break. Okay. Yeah. Long, long break. So at Harvard was an executive ed program. Um, you know, my transcripts never, ever, ever would have got me into, uh, into Harvard. So the, the interesting part of first, you know, in their executive ed program at Harvard and, and really when we started raising uh, the fund in Deventi, I was quite young. You know, people were like, who's the CEO of the fund? You know, and, and in the U.S. when you say... Sorry, Deventi was, you I'm founded running, that in your early 20s? Yeah, you know, mid, mid-20s. mid Gotcha. Um, and then, you know, when, when people would say, who's running it? Uh, it's me. You know, where did you go to school? Oh, I went to UBC. They're like, what is that, a state school? And it was, you know, it was a bit of a, a hit to the ego, if you will. And, you know, a business mentor of mine said, you know, why don't you go to executive ed? Like, yeah, MIT, Stanford has a program. MIT was not my jam. But, you know, Harvard was one where I kind of flippantly almost sent an application and going, you know, yeah, right, with these transcripts and my, my grade scores. Um and, you know, my brother, who was very bright, was accepted and chose not to go. So he was the student in, in our house. And I was the um, renegade, the entrepreneur, you know, that, that, that sort of, I guess. Um, but I, I got this acceptance letter back and, uh, you know, wow. huge surprise. And, you know, I later figured out why. But um, on the application, actually. So I had a lot of experience in real estate. You know, my first private equity fund was in real estate. And then we had this cannabis vertical. And I, I, I kind of overplayed the real estate and really downplayed the cannabis on my application and submitted it. So when I got that acceptance letter, I, I sent it to my mother, of course, and said, not the son you thought would be going. And we had a good laugh. Um, and, and, you know, really early in that first program, which I think was venture capital, private equity, or, or, you know, I can't remember what that module was the first time I was on property on site. Um, it was very, very interesting. And, and, you know, there was uh, a very famous real estate prof, uh, a Canadian, and she, you know, the first case we were looking at was CPP and they had, they have a very active investment model, right? Like they, they really 
by companies, brands, not very much, you know, not very many pension funds would invest like that. So she said, we're the Canadians. And, you know, proudly I put my hand up and, and, you know, as, as it goes in the movies, it, it goes in real life. You know, they do just call on you and you better be prepared. So she said, you know, Sherlock, uh, would you take money from a pension fund into your fund? And I said, which fund? Being a little cheeky, because uh, we did still have an active real estate fund. And I would absolutely take pension money in there. And she said, you know exactly which one, inferring to my cannabis one. So I was quite surprised that they would know that much about the 80 people who were in this class who are all CEOs or business owners and you know it's, it's in their executive ed program so afterwards I, I was so fascinated by this so so I said no I wouldn't and you know it was very very early in the cannabis world and we had a firm belief that if people didn't understand the market they were investing in we didn't want their money we didn't want because we were invested in it we were figuring out what this market is going to look like, but you know, this was a time where illegal dispensaries are being closed down and other people in the fund world would get calls, panicked calls from investors. Like, are we going to lose all our money? And we were very, very clear that we were in legal cannabis, right? Anything outside of that, we wouldn't even touch. It wouldn't even get to our deal team if it wasn't within, you know, the limited legal framework that we felt was growing. Right. As it grew, so did the, the amount of deals we could look at. But anything that wasn't black and white on our team, we didn't look at. Um, but going back to the Harvard side of things, uh, you know, after that class was over, I, I went to chat with her and, and I was just fascinated. So they said, you know, we, we get hundreds of applications for the 80 seats and they meet as a team they look over and they try and build what they feel is the most dynamic room and the way she explained it is you know if we had 80 stockbrokers from new york we'd have a very myopic view of the cases and you know it was my cannabis experience that made me very unique and and the interesting part is at that time i had almost two decades of real estate experience and kind of three years in in cannabis and we were experts in cannabis and, you know, I was not even close to an expert in real estate in their eyes, which was kind of mind boggling, right? After, you know, I'm still trying to figure this out, but we did have three years more than kind of anyone else who was who was looking at it at the time. Interesting. And you mentioned uh, the, this gray area, um, and I can speak to that just from kindling and my own experience dealing with it and how yeah. murky it is, how dynamic it is. It's a nascent market that's sort of finding its legs. Um, and that's challenging enough with one company. You're going through, okay, how can we advertise? Where's the line here? What happens if we step over the line? You know. Um, so can you speak to a little bit about the, like with that de amount of deal flow that you're seeing, how do you dig in and and get black and white answers on these businesses and ventures when all of it's pretty much gray from my vantage point. I mean, you know what, like good lawyers and surrounding yourself with good people, um, you know, just to, to understand, you know, what's reasonable risk and, and what's really pushing the line too far. Right. Oh, yeah. And you know, it was a big part of it. Like referrals are such a huge part of, of the way we do business, right? I mean, if, if it's from one of our trusted attorneys or compliance people or accountants or, you know, 
you know, you name it, even just friends, right? Like, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm a big food and wine guy as you would have seen in, in, you know, I heard. In, those, in that Instagram. Yeah. And, and, you know, really that's been a phenomenal way. Like I love when hosting a dinner, right. And, and usually I love to have half people I know and half people they know. And, and then, you know, you grow that network, you see some really interesting opportunities, you know, you might meet someone who wrote the regulations in that state, and then two years later or two weeks later, we might be looking at a deal, and, and that's a great contact or person to have. Um, yeah. So, and then, you know, we met a lot of really creative entrepreneurs. I mean, if you look at, like, Trent Kitch, who, who founded Doja Cannabis. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, good friend, also fellow Kelowna gentleman, but you know, what they were doing with the branded coffee shop model, right, before dispensaries were allowed. So you're kind of, you know, you can't open a dispensary and start selling cannabis yet, but they had these coffee shops with the branding, getting people used to, this is Doja, it will be cannabis, but right now, why don't you just stop in and have a coffee? And would you say, would, really, you really touch solution. would you have touched Doja at the time, or that's too gray for you? Oh, no, no, we were, we were in Doja. Okay, okay, gotcha. So Big, big supporters. And then, you know, Doja went, um, so Doja went up to Tokyo Smoke and then Tokyo Smoke to Canopy and, you know, the, so the story goes. Gotcha. So, I mean, that is still kind of a gray area, you know, the cafe stuff or no? That's kind of, I mean, well, you keep, probably looked into it and it's black and white like you're not. No, keep, keep in mind, there was absolutely not a piece of cannabis sold. It was purely a coffee shop with the name Doja. Gotcha. And a clothing brand with the name Doja. And then the day they got their license and the day those regulations came through, you know, I mean, way. by that time it was already already changed. But it was the same as Tokyo Smoke, right? I mean, Tokyo Smoke was getting people used to the brand, the location, letting people know it was coming, Right. Yep. And trying to make a few dollars while you had to have those little, like when you looked at the other companies who leased the building and were waiting and were doing nothing. So they're paying the lease, but nothing's happening. You can't sell. They weren't even marketing. They weren't advertising. And then it was like, well, once you get a license, we'll open the store and then start to make the brand. That to me, just you looked at the two and you're like, this is a really unique way to get a head start. Totally. And it's kind of uh, speaks to the creativity that you have to have in the industry, wherein, oh. you know, you look at uh, certain brands, Cookies, Burb, I think is another one where uh, you're kind of riding on apparel now and you're because you're able to market that vertical. Um, you know, when you're opening these uh, the, these uh, licensed dispensaries, you have to get a little creative because you need to build out that real estate and get the brand built before you open and get licensed. So it's definitely very interesting. Um so back to Daventi. Um, so you you've started this fund. Um, you're in your mid twenties. Where does is Vitalis Extraction that starts before or after Harvard? Uh, after Harvard, oh, yeah. but you know, kind of almost, you know, through the Daventi. So you know, my my background. People like I I am not a cultivation guy. I know how to kill plants, not grow them. Um, <laughs> But I was more on like infrastructure, kind of picks and shovels, things that we could take across state lines, not cannabis, right? So if you create IP, 
or if you're financing equipment, right? We can set one structure up and you can finance equipment in Nevada, you could finance equipment in California. You know, what we were looking at is what could we build now in the legal states that we could grow into future states, right? Look at lighting or fertilizers, right? With our, our investment into future harvest long, long ago, right? Future Harvest went to Invictus and, you know, that that was a great eye opener for me that you could be in that market or, or participate in that market, but you could be in that market with a product, you know, that was manufactured in Canada, fertilizer, and then it would be sold into all the states. And, and you know, it was a really unique angle. So that's, I started really kind of looking at different opportunities in that world. Um, so extraction equipment was one of them. First, we started financing it. So, you know, we owned a bunch of different machines in a bunch of different locations. This science team wanted a Waters. This science team wanted an Eden. Um, but this pump wouldn't work on that machine. This team would learn something and couldn't teach that team. So really, I just went out to standardize to one platform. I mean, we had big dreams, and I would call the manufacturers, and I'd say, this is who we are. We're going to be the biggest and will probably be your best customer, but I'm looking for standardization. I've talked to the team. We want these customization pieces, and I'd like a deal based on, like, giving you a, a, a long-term kind of commitment. And all of them told me where to go and how to get there. <laughs> so uh, I, I didn't like that. No. Nope. And that was when I, I went to a friend of mine who was an oil and gas engineer and said, could you build me five of these? And it, it was an interesting conversation because I, I really didn't know much about, you know, equipment manufacturing at that time. And he said, what kind of pressure? I'm like two, 3,000 PSI, four, 5,000 PSI. I can't remember what I said. But he laughed and said, oh, that's cute. <laughs> and I thought, what do you mean? And uh, he's like, Joel, we built stuff for the oil patch, like half ton capacity. We build hydraulics, 40, 50,000 PSI. Right. You know, and if it doesn't work 24-7, we get fired. And I laughed and I was like, man, if the cannabis stuff works two days out of seven, we'd be happy. <laughs> That's funny. Right? Like in the early days, people were, were, you know, like taking lab like equipment and running it in a commercial production facility, which is just not what it was built for. And so it would break down, you know, and, and, and that was just life. Totally. I think that's kind of uh, a constant theme throughout the industry, too, is like trying to meld this one side of cannabis, the culture that's been around for decades, and then also this financialization and private equity and funds and commercialization and branding and trying to put these two together. I mean, we're only, what, like five years into it? And uh, I think we're doing pretty well, but it's definitely a, a fraught connection for sure. Um, in terms of the prescient uh, strategy of yours to go into picks and shovels. Did you ever get tempted? Because it's obvious. It was obviously. I mean, I got tempted. And we're we're in it. We're retailing. But um, did you ever get tempted by the uh, the allure of the of the uh, can actually retailing cannabis ever? Or is it all sort of uh, like? Are you funding generally? Like you knew? Did you originally know that you know you're going to stay away from retailing actual product and kind of focus on the picks and shovels? No, and, and you know, I, I wouldn't say we, we just stuck to what we knew, right? I mean, if you look at Avant, I think one, they're one of the premium producers, you know, brands now. And, and you know, they, their product sells out. They've got consistent quality. They've, they've done a phenomenal job building their revenue. 
Um, but you know, that's really Norton's wheelhouse and, and not mine. Right. So I, I like to be a specialist, not a generalist. And, and, you know, as, as we learned more, I, that's not saying we haven't invested in it, but you know, I, I, I like to be more than just capital on a cap table and, and in, you know, retail when it, when it's, you know, like we're in branded products on a couple of things. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm not as much value there. So we, I didn't spend as much time really focused on that. What drives those investments, those uh, sort of marginally small compared to your overall fund? People. Right. Very, very easily. Right. I mean, for us, we've got a strict no asshole policy. Uh, again, you know, like having dinner with people and just seeing, right. it, it's so funny, right? Like seeing how they treat the server, seeing how they, look at everyone else or speak to everyone else on the table. There are a lot of big personalities in cannabis. And I think, you know, when, when you feel like you're at the top of the ship or heap or pile and you're better than everyone else and there's nothing left to learn, those are the people who historically have gone down in pretty fiery uh, explosions. Totally. Do you, is your philosophy on that? Would you rather someone that you kind of get along with that has a little horsepower under the, uh, the hood and let them sort of learn the business or would you rather an, you know, subject matter expert kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like what's your take on Uh hiring and building a team around that? I mean, like, so we, we want people with prior experience in building things, not necessarily cannabis, right? I think a lot of people who came with huge cannabis experience, it, it has to be transferable, right? If you've managed 10, you know, one to 2000 square foot grows for the last however many years, if you've got that experience, and then you're coming forward saying, you know, I'm going to build a 3 million square foot greenhouse, and I have this expertise because I'm a master grower but it's like how many million square foot greenhouses have you run before, right? Because, you know, it's non-transferable skills. Sure, growing cannabis, there are some things that you will learn, but managing an ecosystem of of that many square feet, what kind of tractors are you going to use? You know, how are you going to repot, plant this? What happens when you have an outbreak? What happens when you have pests? How do you manage this? It's a totally different world, right? And it's a very, very similar thing to – you know, if you were making shatters or your brand was sold kind of in the gray market and now you're going to go into multi-states or, or, you know, dealing with the cannabis boards and regulatory compliance officers that are required, you know, what's your experience in doing that? Because you could be the best product manufacturer, but if you can't fill out the paperwork or if you fill it out wrong or you can't budget or Follow plan, the licenses, uh, X, Y, Z. A hundred percent. Totally. Um, so with the, uh, as you got into the Vitalis extraction uh, investment, it you, you look at your role there as chairman, and then you migrated into a CEO, more executive role. Can you speak to that uh, changeover? Was it something that you weren't seeing um, executed properly, or was it more of a structural change? Um, you know, ultimately, I mean, so we started Vitalis and, you know, it was kind of, it'll build machines for us and, you know, maybe we'll be able to sell a few more, right? We started with a very blue ocean strategy of, you know, we're going to build 
big machines for commercial, like too big to fit in a basement, too big to fit in a garage was kind of the early ideas, right? Is that, like, is that generally, sorry, wanted, is, the, is it generally basement and garage extraction at the beginning of the of that process, like 2017-ish? Was there oh an... Oh gosh, yeah. Oh really, huge, okay, okay. Right, but but like when you work with oil and gas engineers, they come in with a with a mentality of, of safety, right? You're, you're dealing with pressure equipment, you're dealing with industrial solvents like ethanol or hydrocarbons. Those are flammable. They have to be dealt with with a very, very serious level of of caution but in the early days like we were building stuff that was code compliant with ASME that was UL certified that was welded by pressure certified welders you know kind of what what would be just table stakes in other industries and it was not in in the cannabis world so if you didn't value safety compliance if you didn't see the market going that way in the future um then, then you wouldn't spend the money on it. And traditionally for us, those were the publicly traded companies. Those were the, the forward-thinking people, the ones who understood that regulation in the market is only going one way up, right? Just because you had your friend who's an engineer come off and sign off on this machine that, that would say should be good, you know, that might be okay now, but will it be okay in the future? You know, you, when you're buying CapEx equipment, um, you want something that's going to last you into the future. So, so we started kind of with these big machines that were high quality build and, and high price point. Um, and then, you know, the market caught up quite quickly. So, you know, we, we, yeah, right place, right time, right strategy. I mean, a bit of everything. And you're still involved with these cannabis ventures in terms of you're still invested, you're still active, you sit on boards, you see the, the market actively. Yep. Where do you see this? Yeah, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. I was just going to say, where do you see this, uh, you know, after five years, we've sort of uh, kind of formed a foundation, I'd say. Um, but where does it go in the next five years in terms of regulation, in terms of market structure? Like in Ontario, we've got a commodity market where the government sets up, is the wholesaler and sets the price uh, for retailers. So, you know, the only thing that people are competing on is, you know, the paint in their store or, uh, you know, how low they can go on margin. So where do you see it going structurally, like uh, in the next sort of five to 10 years? What's the next stage of this? Um, If the first stage was sort of, you know, over financialization, a lot of uh, boom and bust sort of um, ventures. Now it's kind of settled in. And where does it go from here? In Canada, in America, in, in Canada, Europe. sorry, yeah, yeah, Canada specifically. Okay, yeah. So in, I guess you Canada, kind of, you'd almost I mean, need to look at pro- provincially, but I'll let you take it where you where you see it going. Yeah. So, um, you know, I guess we kind of have different ways of looking at it, right? In, in the Canadian landscape, I think, you know, I think we're going to see continued privatization a little bit more opening up. And I mean, if if I were to take a line from Alan Gertner long, you know, founder of Tokyo Smoke and, and you know, really brilliant mind, I, I feel, on, on sort of brands and, and different things in space. But he used to talk about coffee, right? You know, like when coffee came to the market, good coffee was strong coffee. Like how, how strong is your coffee? Right. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's what we've just come through, right? People were like, I would like some coffee. And now yeah. you're starting to get into preferences you know, people are starting to come in and maybe not just ask the bud tender 
you know, what do you have? Or I'm looking for this or high what THC. would you recommend for that? Yeah. High THC was the winner. Right. And, and now, you know, you're starting to see, I, I think we'll continue to see people starting to build preferences, starting to go and look for something. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I think we'll hopefully start to see an emergence of, of brands. You know, I think the guys at, at Avant, not to keep going back to them, but I think they're doing a great job, right? Um, if you do I, say I so yourself. If I do, yeah, exactly. I yeah. might be a little biased, but uh, yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we've got a couple brands in the portfolio, um, you know, in the luxury beauty space. We, we've got an investment in a company called Osio. Um, so, you know, I, I really like that, but that is a long play. That is that is definitely a long play to to get it right and, and to do it properly. Totally. And it's a tough one, too. I've tried to, with Kindling, tried to access that non-cannabis consumer, <laughs> like the your mom's friend who wants one last glass of white wine, you know, maybe a, a small yeah. dose gummy. Um, and it's a very tough market to crack because of, obviously, the, you know, the marketing regulations. But I think it's coming. I mean... A lot of the categories in our that we're seeing in our e-commerce business is it's it's still high THC. It's still you know uh, the product that's going to put you in a coma, uh, you know the the fastest. But I do like the most exciting. I think brands that are coming around are those the the health and beauty, the wellness brands oh. that that can really sort of you know accent uh, your life, better your best. You see, so. A hundred percent. Right. And, and I think, you know, looking at other markets or the more time we've spent in other markets, the more, the more we see other opportunities, success stories, customer preference patterns, you know, you name it, you look at like Kiva chocolates, wild gummies. I mean, they, they have done such a great job in those markets. Right. I mean, we were investors in, in Boulder Rose brands, which had like rebel coast wines and, you know, some of those really, really, you know, non-high THC products, right? They have kind of very, very small dose or, or just different things that, that could um, appeal Terpenes to those consumers. and smaller cannabinoids, et cetera. Yeah, definitely yeah. a fuller profile. So in terms of the looking at those product innovations and what's coming down the pipeline, your future view, do you kind of cultivate that from the original legalization states like California, Colorado, is that where you work backwards from? Cause there's no real sort of uh, North star. You kind of got to make it up, right? Like there's no, I see, I, I disagree. I mean, okay. I think there are a couple of great North stars. Like I don't believe brands can exist without consistency. Right. And, and so growing cannabis is, is like, you know, any egg product, but then with an added level of difficulty where there's going to be huge variance in your crop. So when you're making products out of that, consistency is going to be very, very important right now. When you start looking at, I'm going to make product in, in BC and Ontario to supply to Canada. I mean, think about if you went into a Starbucks or a McDonald's or, you know, insert any franchise name here and, you know, you, you love it in Ontario and you try it in BC and it's totally different. That devalues the franchise. Think about that how hard that is with cannabis experience. too. Like the, the crop it's is different. It's difficult. crazy hard. <laughs> yeah, don't get it. So, you know, you, you look at the teams that have been masters in getting it. So, so let's, let's go first principle, right? Of consistency in manufacturing a product or being able to vary or deal with the varied input material, which I think is 
guaranteed to continue. So those who can manufacture a quality product consistently is something, I think that's a North Star, who can do it profitably, who understand their numbers, another North Star. Um, and then who can manage their own inventories. Because if you get shelf space and then you sell out, that can almost be as detrimental as never getting the shelf, right? I don't know. I've seen a lot of the uh, more drop-focused brands really get uh, a lot of hype around that. But, yeah, totally. And to your point with that, sorry, uh, with the future view question, what I'm gleaning from your answer is sort of that you take it from a first principles perspective where if you have a good brand, you've built that with consistency, you're always going to win, no matter what widget it is, if it's cannabis, wine, whatever. Like as long as you're focusing on those, you know, tried and true P&L <laughs> Uh, driven metrics, you're going to succeed. Is that kind of what you're, what you're saying? A little deeper than that, right? Okay, so, okay. so, but, but you're for sure, right? I mean, the way we look at it is definitely on a lot of first principles. But you know, if you're building a drop focus brand, if you're teaching your consumers that we will launch here and it will go quickly, then that's what, you know the supreme model, if you will, not yeah. supreme cannabis, supreme the clothing brand. Yeah. Um, but, you know, where if, if your business plan that you've pitched is like, we're going to get these stores growth, if, you're, if your revenue goes like this, then that's what we expect you to be building, right? I mean, if, if it's these uh, drop, 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 then that's what we'd be looking for, right? But, but when you look at people's history of like, we opened 10 stores and we supplied five of them consistently you know then are you are you scaling too quickly are you not managing your inventories properly your production schedules you know whatever that may look like that was and and is rampant in cannabis and i think that's the sort of um like we were talking about these two worlds i think that what you just talked about with that consistency of reporting and operations etc is what's required to scale these great ideas like you do need the cannabis, the deep cannabis knowledge is required as the seed. And then to make it sort of grow, I don't want to continue this analogy, but um, to, to make it grow <laughs> and scale, you do need that, those systems, those first principles, um, like we talked about well, for sure. And those people have done it before. I mean, if you yeah. look at the, the Redican founders, I love those guys and they are brilliant. Did you say Redican? At operating Redican, yeah. Yeah, I love their products, yeah. The Montours. Right. And, and like, you know, they, they have a wealth of experience that they brought into cannabis manufacturing distribution. You know, I, I'll let anybody, you know, look into the background on that. I won't speak to it cause I'm not an expert, but we've got to know them well. And I think they are, they're great. They, they surround themselves with people. They work really hard. Their people know their element of the business. You know, it, it was impressive to see what, what they built and how quickly they scaled it. And, you know, I mean, recently with their merger and what's happened there, I, I, I won't speak to that, but you know, their ability to make product, make it consistently and get it consistently on shelves. It's phenomenal. It was, it was, I think unmatched in cannabis. I totally agree. Ready can actually was the first uh, legal product that I tried. Um, I used it for, 
I use their CBD products for anxiety initially, quitting drinking and then moving into sort of like a healthier lifestyle. I, I did use it and it, it really did help. And their, their sort of strategy on low, very low dose, um, I think was kind of innovative. Well, it was innovative for the time where everyone was focused on the THC percentage, et cetera. Like they're coming backwards in, uh, in strength and, and yeah, very interesting for sure. Um, so I kind of want to get into your, uh, what you're up to now. Like what, uh, what's scratching your itch now? What's the, uh, what's the venture that has you, uh, up at night? Um, you know, I mean, I, I still like, we were early, early, early investors in Europe. Um, you know, I think that is a fascinating market with, you know, not borderless, but the ability to grow here, process here and sell here, right. Grow in, Portugal process in Denmark, sell in Germany. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's really, really interesting. The barrier to entry there is much higher, right? I mean, we built a EU GMP processing facility called Valken uh, in Denmark. It was one of the early, early um, licensed operational groups. I think there's some really cool things coming uh, in that market, both in, in number of patients, adult use, um, new countries coming on board, you know, there, there's just so much excitement there. And then you've got 700 million people, you know, in that trade zone once it's, uh, once it's coming online. But I also think there's, there are a lot of people that have been kind of untapped. I mean, I think much like your journey, you know, your, your use, right. It's not really, you know, like using it for athletes and running and, and, you know, some of those pieces, I think it, it's very, um, very unique and, and just a market that really hasn't been been tapped. Yeah, and to that point, I, I always use the kind of booze analogy with it, but I think there's a little bit more to it than that, honestly. Because so you take a wine, and uh, when we were talking about like the inconsistencies with production and sort of the uh, the nature of wine itself, but I mean, you're not going to have a drink and, and uh, go for a run or go meditate. Maybe, maybe you will. I don't know, but. Um, whereas cannabis has this totally other side that isn't leisure necessarily. You know what I mean? Like it's got this other wellness side that is just being tapped now where, you know, we have THCV, THCA that's, you know, uh, very effective in, uh, treating inflammation. So, you know, you're not really getting that with, uh, necessarily, uh, Stoli vodka, but, um, yeah, it's definitely interesting. How, what, what's your take on consumption? Like what's your, uh, what's your flavor? What's your vibe? I, you know, so I am, uh, I am not a huge cannabis user um, because I do find that, you know, it doesn't matter the strain. It just, it puts me asleep. So I, I use it for sleep. Oh, there you go. Um, you know, when I was traveling crazy time zones, you name it, I would come home. You know, I had a couple great vapes that I, I love to go to or edibles. Um, and just, you know, it, it, it helps me sleep. That's really the, the big use for me. Um, but, you know, going back to what you say, I, I mean, talked about being a wine guy and that's still, you know, a, a big thing for me. I, I love to cook. I love wine. But when you look at alcohol to cannabis, there's way more medicinal properties there. And I'm really, really excited for some of the research that's starting and, you know, you know, some of these minor cannabinoids that, that we're starting to explore and, uh, I'm really excited to see that continue moving forward. Um, you know, there's some great groups, both Canada, U.S., Europe, uh, mm-hmm. doing some really, really interesting work. 
Um, but I, I also, you know, you asked me what, what's next. I mean, the psychedelic world for us, we've put some money to work in, in that world. Um, I'm really in love with what Filament Health is doing on the naturally derived GMP outputs. Um, because I think from, you know, alcohol being here, if you will, cannabis having way more medicinal properties, I think psychedelics are, are even higher again. I think there's a lot of really, really interesting science to be done around that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the research of, of really understanding these plants better is something I'm, I'm really excited to see, you know, that chapter of it move forward. I think federal legality, if we ever see it in the U S will certainly help with, uh, with the exploration or adoption of, of some of those cannabinoids, CBD, et cetera. Um, yeah, so it's, there's, I, I think we're in the third or fourth inning, really. I think it's still very, very early. Totally. And how do you see those innovations getting to market given sort of the regulatory um, cloud that you have to get through? Is it medical or is it adult use? And, you know, like what's what's going to speak to the market? You used it. You mentioned you use it for sleep. So we partition our yeah. website and categorize it based on function as well. So like, you know, um, so how would how would your mom how would my mom get uh news of a, of, an, a, of a product innovation that's going to speak to her? You know what I mean? Like, is it so, through what channel? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you got to go back to first principles here around here claims, go. right? And, and how okay. that world works, right? I think as if you, I guess, you know, if I put my, my European hat on, so I am, I am the chairman of the board of Falcon and um, Pete is our CEO. We've been very, very active on that investment, but operating in that market is completely different, right? It is EU GMP, which is, you know, GMP here and then, you know, 10 steps up. It is, it is a pharmaceutical plant. It is stability data. It is consistency. It is just, you know, a lot more regulatory compliance, right? Um, you know, GMP stands for give me paper. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> Cheap joke there. There we go. But, you know, I mean, it, it really is helping us get a lot more of that data. So you go back to those claims. I don't think we can confidently make them uh, or publicly make them until we truly understand, you know, kind of much more about the plant. Now, do you need to go all the way of double-blind clinical trials? Uh, you know, I guess the jury's still out on that. But I think more data is needed in more controlled environments for people and regulators to truly adopt this is for sleep, this is for anxiety, yep. you know, totally this agree. is who's, for running. Who's funding that, though? Is it Would it be the companies that are producing the pro – no. So who would – you know, how do you structure it, that such that we can get these claims and solidify them and, uh, you know, blast them out? Great question. Yeah. I mean, we'll look into it right now, right, right now. No, I mean, like, I, I don't think anyone is funding the huge expense that it would need to, to take that all the way. There are a lot of groups doing some really interesting research. Um, and I think, you know, the, the more collaborative we can be and the more groups can work together you know, you take this, I'll, I'll spend on that, and then we'll, we'll share the outcome. I think ultimately that, that could be an interesting strategy. Yeah, maybe collectively get uh, some functional cannabis companies together and fund a, uh, an unbiased research 
paper or something. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't know who wants to head that up. I, I am not volunteering. I'm out. Um, so <laughs> I don't want to keep you for uh, too much longer. Uh, my last question is going to be about um, your philanthropy and what you're up to now. I see a founder's yeah. pledge. Can you talk to me about what that, the philosophy of that is for you and uh, um, yeah, how you put that together? Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, philanthropy or just sort of giving back has always been a, a big part of, of my life and, and business, right? Be it charity events to building schools, both, you know, we, we want to look after things locally because I think there are needs, you know, in Canada and, and in the U S um, you know, there, there are needs domestically, but I think, you know, there, there are also really interesting needs internationally. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed and thankful to have been born to a great family in a great country, right? I mean, Canada, is very different than, than a lot of um, where, where other people have been born. And, you know, and looking at a lot of the causes that, that, that we support, I mean, if it's education has been a big one, um, you know, water, I think ultimately if, if you don't have consistent clean water, then, you know, your health suffers, your education is non-existent. I mean, if, if you're walking six hours a day, three to get water, three home, or whatever that would be, um, you know, it's tough to build a business. It's tough to get out of that situation. It's tough to go to school. So charity water has been a big one. Um, you know, there's lots of different causes, but but usually we look at it again, first principles, if you will. Um, and, and, you know, so a friend of mine was involved with Founders Pledge and when, when I heard about it, so so basically, I mean, it's it's given me great resources and, you know, to, to look at, this is something I'm passionate about who's doing it the best, or we want to make this difference. Who's, who's the best at that. So if people haven't checked it out, founders pledge is an amazing organization. You know, they, they vet entrepreneurs and you make a commitment that on every exit, a portion is going to charity to, you know, give back. They don't dictate where it has to go. I get to dictate that, um, which is something that was really important to me. So right now, I mean, Nature, nature conservation, um, you know, green energy is something we're looking at a lot. You know, food production is something I'm spending a lot of time exploring, both from the philanthropic side, but, you know, also from, you know, the extraction and, and sort of optimization side. So naturally you've created a fund and a venture capital organization around your philanthropy. <laughs> More so, I'm, I'm just joking. You've got like eight thousand different things going on. So you yeah. you take these. Uh, so when you exit from one, are you do you fund flow the funds to one endeavor generally, mainly like the water, or is it uh, you kind of disperse it just like you would any other fund? Uh, you know, you kind of disperse it, yeah. And usually, you know, um, we we you know, I, I don't want to go a hundred percent in on on one organization, one you know, like I look at it like one investment. Right. I mean, you're, totally. you're supporting that not for profit or that for benefit corporation, right. To, to go out and do more than I could alone. Right. If that makes sense. It does. And do they, do they kind of function similar to venture capital wherein this might be a dumb question, but where some charities can find their function or find their fit and then they just start to get really, really effective. And so you're sort of like seeding a bunch of them, wait, like kind of seeing which one really take root or is that how that kind of works or is it just a function of financing funding? 
A little bit. I mean, you know, for us, we're looking at people who are, you know, who have a great reputation of actually getting the work done, right? Flow through rate is a, is a huge piece that we look at in, in the philanthropic side, right? Like, you know, some organizations not going to throw any under the bus, but charity navigator is a great tool, right? I mean, if, if, you know, if, if you're making a, a gift, a donation, and 50% of that is just going to executive salaries, I want no part of that, right? Um, we we worked quite a bit with Free the Children. Uh, we built a number of schools when I when in our real estate ventures with that organization. And then you know you, when you get calls from investigative reporters who are saying that maybe they didn't build as many schools as they did, I don't know if they did or they didn't. But I can tell you that feeling of you know maybe we thought we built a school that didn't get built was, was really quite, whether it was true or untrue, the feeling on it really took away from the joy. So it's like, you know, Charity Water was fantastic where it was like, which project do you want to fund? Here are some photos, here's GPS coordinates, and here's like videos of how much water has come out, right? It was, it was really, really valuable. So I, I love that transparency is something we look for quite a bit. Gotcha. That's inspiring. Awesome. I'm interested, like you guys have way more experience on the brands and product side. What are you seeing in Canada? What really excites you? I mean, I get really excited about the functional side of it. It's really not what pays the bills at the moment. It's a lot of, uh, you know, high THC pre-roll, um, but we're focused on the e-commerce side. So, you know, we're looking at the, the real estate strategy as sort of a, you know, mini fulfillment, you know, uh, ultra fast grocery model, if you will, where, you know, we, you order online and it's at your door trackable. Um, and we have every product under the sun, um, with a ton of information and content around that. Um, and we're looking at sort of launching our content strategy this year by doing these kind of things with you. Um, wherein we're going to, we're going to look at creating a ton of, cause I see a lot of white space in this industry, especially cannabis content in Canada, that alliteration, cannabis content in Canada. Um, where there's not much there and there's no brands that are really sort of the standalone, I hate using them, but like Amazon, Uber, like these real titans. There's not one, I don't think. I mean, they're very regional. They're very, you know, um, uh, provincial. So, yeah, I just think there's it's very early and uh, there's a lot of white space available and um, we're pretty excited about it. Love it. Love right, it. Thanks a lot, Joel. I really appreciate it. Uh, And yeah, thank you. Hey, thanks for having me.